open up the scriptures together. Um, we're going to be looking at several different passages today, so I um, encourage you to, I think there's a Bible in the book rack in the chair in front of you to grab that. We'll also have uh, some scriptures up on the screen today. Um, <clears throat> so we're a, a little over a week removed from Thanksgiving, so um, you finished the turkey and the coma that comes after the turkey. Is anyone still eating leftovers? Yeah? Okay. I'm okay with that, so um, we do that in our house. So um, so we kind of come off this high of Thanksgiving, and so what's next? Not much, right? It's not really anything coming up. No holidays in the next little while. You know I'm kidding. You see evidence over of it all over the place. Before Thanksgiving even ended, or probably even before, like, summer ended, um, you saw things at Walmart, stocking shelves with Christmas lights and little elves and all this other stuff. Radio stations playing Christmas music, all, it's all over the place. Um, and it's easy to get lost in Black Friday, uh, Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday, right? I don't know what Wednesday is going to be after that, but I'm sure they'll come up with something. It's easy to get lost and remember why Christmas is a thing in the first place, isn't it? Um, no, we're not, we're not going to talk too much about that today. We don't need to talk about that. But today our goal is going to be go back to where Christmas started. Um, what the point of it is, and remember that the things that show up under our tree Christmas morning, those are just the slightest shadow of what it's really all about. It's so good to, this time of year to come back uh, and remember it. In the, in the tradi- church tradition I grew up in, we, had, uh, we actually had Wednesday night services every, every Wednesday in December. Uh, additional Advent services. And as a kid, I necessarily wasn't a big fan. Uh, we had a potluck meal beforehand. I enjoyed that. Um, but the, the services, they, you know, they got kind of long and stuff. But now as I look back on that, some I actually almost I miss a little bit. Just the preparation, the way it prepared us um, for, for Christ's coming. Well, there's no doubt uh, a com- topic of conversation in the coming days will be something like this. What are your plans for Christmas? What are you planning for Christmas? Now, for us, for our family, inevitably, at some point, early each summer, while visiting our in-laws, the topic of Christmas will come up, and our wives and their mom uh, will begin to make plans. Early summer. And, and it makes me roll my eyes and chuckle a little bit when this happens, pretty much every year. Um, but I have to admit that my in-laws are closer to the Lord in their planning than last-minute me. When do you think the Lord started planning for Christmas? Specifically, the first Christmas. Now, if I asked you where Christmas really started, many of you would say, kind of the Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? And you'd be right, because that's, that's absolutely true. But what if I asked you, when, the, when, the, when were the plans for the first Christmas started? What would you say? Would you say maybe uh, a few days before the angel Gabriel came to visit Mary, you know, and, and God says, hey, Gabriel, come here, come into my office. I got this great plan. We got to find somebody to have this baby, and, you know, something like that. Was it like that? Uh, maybe he said, you know, um, he had his people, chosen people, Israel, um, and and but the Romans uh, took them cap, you know, took over their nation, and um, people were were oppressed by them and stuff. And God's like, ah, oh, I got to find plan to do something. So okay, let's send Jesus down there. Is that what he did? No. Maybe it started way before then. So let's see what the scriptures have to say about this. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to take a bird's eye view. So that's we're going to fly through several passages. So we're going to start today in Genesis uh, chapter 12. And a little background here. Several hundred years after the great flood, um, with the well-known account of Noah and his ark, there's a man named Abram. Now he's not particularly significant or impressive. 
He and his wife are basically pagan nomads in what is today modern-day Iraq. Even though there's nothing that marks Abram as impressive, he doesn't have land or cattle too much. He doesn't have any children, which in in that day especially um, was a very significant strike against him. God comes to him with a deal. He makes a covenant or a contract uh, with him. Let's look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and see what, what God tells Abram back here. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now if you look at the next verse right after this, verse 4, it tells us that Abraham went. Uh, We don't know exactly how he appeared or what happened here, but, but Abraham, he follows. He picked up his possessions along with his wife and nephew and set out for the land of Canaan, uh, which is in modern-day Israel today. He didn't know where he was going. He'd never been there before and no idea what would happen there, but he did what God asked him to do anyways. And by answering God's call, Abraham opened up his end of the deal to become a blessing for all people. And let's look at that for a second. Look at the last line of God's promise in verse 3. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. All the families of the earth. At this time, there was no nation of Israel. There was no God's chosen people. That wasn't a thing yet. So when God is making this promise, he isn't just referencing a specific group of people. Now we, we see, we know from reading later in the scriptures that that's what he's going to do through the nation of Israel. But at this time, there's not. He's not limiting his what he's promised to a select nation. He says all the peoples on earth, all the families all the nations, all the ethnos, the people groups on earth, all will be blessed through this. God is telling Abram that his plan goes beyond Abraham and, Abraham and his descendants. His plan goes beyond Israel. When God makes this promise, he has everyone who has ever lived in mind and ever will live. It's a huge scale. It's a huge scope. So as Abram followed God, God renamed him Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. He gave him a son eventually, many years later, named Isaac, and through his descendants brought out the whole nation of Israel. But Abram was only heard the start of the plan. He never got to see the whole thing played out. He played his part while he was alive, and we don't know how much he knew about how God planned to carry out this plan through him. Um, We don't know exactly about that. In fact, many of his descendants along the way, other people of God, other prophets, the nations, uh, we see they get little hints and bits and pieces of the plan. But a lot of them, don't, they don't actually get to see, uh, see it come into fruition. Some, get, some people and down through the generations had small hints. Some had big hints woven into the history of Israel. And as the generations kept going on and on, God kept reminding them of the work that he was going to do through them. And you see that in many different places in the Old Testament, the deliverance that he was going to bring to the nation of Israel. There's all these hints over the place that this was going to the rest of the world too. So let's jump ahead many, many, many generations to Isaiah. The prophet of God, Isaiah at a time was was God's mouthpiece to his people. So by the time he came around, Abraham was long gone. But God spoke to Isaiah and told him many things, including some pieces about this plan that he had to fulfill, that the, the, the plans he had to fulfill, the promise that he had made to bless the whole earth. And lucky for us, Isaiah wrote it down for us. Turn with me to the, uh, the book of Isaiah. We're going to start in uh, Isaiah 49, verses 5. And six. 
he says, and now the Lord says, he's talking about this servant, this nameless servant. Now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations. There it is again. That my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. You see what God has said here. He said that he was still working to bring salvation to everyone on earth. It was like 1,500 years have passed since Abram. But he's, he's still coming back to this plan. Even though he only mostly spoken to the nation of Israel at this point, he tells them that his goals goes beyond them. And that Israel as a nation is to serve as a launching pad for the fulfillment of his plan to reach the entire globe. It's amazing. A few chapters later, in Isaiah 52 and 53, God mentions this servant again and tells Isaiah exactly what it is he plans to do in order to save the peoples of this world. He gets a little more detailed. And look at Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. This might be a passage that will be familiar to some of you. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's talking about this servant. He had carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God tells us that the problem is that, that everyone needs saving from. What do people need saving from? The fact that we have gone astray. We've chosen our own selfish interests over-serving and loving God and others. This is the iniquity, the transgression that we bear. And that's referenced in those verses. So God decides to bring someone else to, deserve the, to take the just punishment that we deserve for that. To bless us by taking on what we deserve. But wait, God doesn't name the person here. Picture yourself, put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. God is like speaking to you somehow and you're writing this stuff down. And I don't know if you knew that this is going to be for future generations. What did you ask? Who's it going to be? Who is it? Is he like someone I know right now? Is it someone coming in the future? Who's it going to be? It's going to be a great king, a great military leader, a vigilante or something, rescuing people here and there. God doesn't describe any of those. Now, God doesn't leave him completely clueless, though. Flip back to the left to Isaiah chapter 9. And this verse was referenced uh, earlier with our, with our Advent candle. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Here's what he says about the person who's going to bless and save the people of earth. And this is very appropriate given the reason why I'm here today and your pastor is not. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, uh, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, and from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Not an emperor, not a, not a politician, not a general, but a child. Unto us a child is born. This is, this is something, um, that, call this a, a contrariety. <clears throat> That's not a word we use very often. 
Um, the word contradiction, when we use that word, it's two things that can't be true at the same time. And they kind of, they butt heads and they, they exclude each other out. A contrariety is similar but different to that. A contrariety is something that, that appears to be contradictory, but they kind of two truths that kind of balance each other out. They don't cancel each other out, but they kind of balance each other out. We would expect a king to come, right? A military leader, full force. It's the God of the universe coming. But he says, a child. This child will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So let's look at this a little more closely. Let's start with the child. And you can flip to uh, Luke chapter 1. We'll continue our, our bird's eye view of what's going on here. <clears throat> we'll see where this actually happens. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Fast forwarding again. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, to the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, out of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Israel in her old age also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with he who is, she who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So this is the, that wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. It's a baby. Promised to a, a woman whose only asset that we can tell of here appears to be her faithful heart. She responds in faith. She says, Lord, let it be as you've said. It's probably a, ver a very young woman um, of no particular standing in their society. Um, we're talking about this concept with some of our students. We work with uh, students on campus at UW-Whitewater. And um, one of our students said in response to this, she, she said, thinking about Mary being the, the, um, the mother of Jesus in this way, that makes me think that God can use anyone. I thought that was a good thought. She can use a, a I don't know, poor middle-class girl um, to carry the Son of God. <laughs> Boy, he can use me to do a lot of different things in this world. thought that was a good thought. This king, the king of the world, the maker of the stars, holding, laying in his mother's arms. It's incredible. Flip over to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. <clears throat> in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. And this is the first registration when Quirinius, uh, Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went, also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to register with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region... 
There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. All the people. There it is again. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom with, he is pleased, with whom he is pleased. And the angels went away from them in the, into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You know what's going on here? Jesus is born, and he's got a proud dad. He's got a proud dad. Those of you um, who, who uh, have received the, the blessing of, of having children of your own, there's a, there's a joy and a, and a pride that comes with that, and a fear too, probably. Um, but God, God's a, his, his son is born, and God's got to tell somebody. So here's another contrariety here. It's the God of the universe. Who is he going to tell first? Who does he call up first? Who does he appear to and say, hey, my son was born? He comes to some shepherds. Now, when we, we don't see shepherds, you know, roaming around Middleton or Wanakee or, you know, something around here that too much, that's not something too common to us. And we might see in old pictures, there's, you know, a shepherd hanging on to a nice fluffy little lamb. Uh, but has anyone actually kept sheep in here? Okay. Um, sheep, they're, they're not necessarily these nice cuddly little stuffed animals like our little girls have. Uh, but they're, they're, they're dirty. Um, they're pretty helpless. Uh, being a shepherd in this time was not was a pretty thankless job. You're outside most of the time. You're just looking around for new pasture. You're protecting sheep from predators, uh, protecting sheep from themselves, not walking off cliffs and, and things like that. So God decides to appear to a, a rugged bunch of shepherds, laying out by their fire, falling asleep, and suddenly the heavens light up. It's amazing. That's who he shared his news with. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, uh, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, declares the Lord. As the high as the heavens, and my ways are higher than your ways. As, as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my ha- thoughts higher than your thoughts. None of us would think to appear to shepherds. We'd go tell someone that we knew better, or, or someone maybe more worthy. We'd tell the, the, the people in power in our society if God was going to do something, but he appears to shepherds. It's amazing. The child is born, so it illustrates this contrariety of the way God works, which are not our ways. And it's a pretty glorious thing when we think about it. So unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. The son wasn't born. The child was born. The son was given. What about this son? Let's turn to John 1, and this is where we'll, we'll end up today. John chapter 1. John starts out his gospel, his account of Jesus' life, with a, beauty, a beautiful passage that enlightens the identity of this child. Who is this son that was given? John starts, and he says, In the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's a little confusing. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in the beginning was the word. Who's the word? Now, if you've grown up in the church and stuff, you can, you can probably give me that answer. But if you're just reading this for the first time, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Um, he was in the beginning with God. It's a he, so it's a person. Who is it? Well, verse 14 gives us a clue. If you jump down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's a person, and as you continue to read, it points to Jesus. Jesus is the word. The word of God putting on flesh, moving into the neighborhood, if you will. Dwelt among us. Uh, we don't talk, we don't use the word dwell very often, but, uh, you know, if someone moved to that house right over there, um, they, that's a dwelling place, and they are now dwelling right next to this church. We'd say that. Jesus took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, invaded our planet for the good of his people. So Jesus is the word. Again, what about this son? What about the word? He was in the beginning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So the child was born, but the son was given. The son preexisted the child, if you will. Jesus, the word, has existed, coexisted with God from eternity. And he is God, in fact. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And then John goes so as far. He says, all things that were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he's saying everything was made through him, and... There's nothing else that was made that was made apart from him. That's what he's saying. It's interesting, if you look back to Genesis 1, which parallels this passage. God created the heavens and the earth. How did he, how, how did he create them? He spoke. He spoke it into being. It's so interesting that Jesus here is called the Word. And we learn elsewhere later, in, like in Colossians, that it's through him and for him, Jesus, that all things were made. Everything. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus himself, the word, this baby, was full of life and light. And he could give it to other people, and that's what we see him do in his life. Look at verse 9 and following. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. There it is again. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. So he comes into the world that he created. He created Mary. <laughs> Just so interesting. He comes into this world, but people didn't receive him. Most people didn't receive him. They rejected him. They crucified him on a cross. He fulfilled Isaiah 53, that passage that we read. Bearing our iniquities, carrying our sorrows... Dying on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And look down at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. Christ made known God the Father to us. And in fact, if you read later in, in John, uh, his disciples are saying to Jesus, Jesus, just show us the Father. You keep talking about this Father, like we're getting to know him, but just show him to us and that'll be enough. 
And Jesus looks at him and says, don't you get it? Don't you get that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Do you, do you ever, do you ever um, I want to know this question sometimes? How would God respond in situation X that you're facing? You know, uh, how, how would God respond to this person that's really frustrating? Or how would God respond to this big question that I have to ask? Well, your situation might not exactly be covered in the scriptures. But one cool thing to do is to look at how did Jesus respond in different situations. And if, if Jesus is truly representing God the Father, if it's one and the same for them to be together, if Jesus is, is the word made flesh, then how would God respond in a given situation? Well, you can find how he'd respond in a lot of situations just by reading the Gospels. How did Jesus respond in that situation? And you'll know how God would respond in that situation. Interesting way to read through uh, the Gospels, maybe in a new way for you. I encourage you to give it a try. So God sent a baby who grew into a man to the created ones, to show the created ones their creator. A baby. Such a quiet entry for the one who truly deserved the loudest and longest welcome. This humble beginning is so contrary to the way we'd expect a glorious king to enter our world. And yet it's so fitting of God's incredible sovereign wisdom. That's the contrariety that's happening there. And I'd like to read you a quote here. This is from uh, Robbie Zacharias in his book, Has Christianity Failed You? The 20th century Scottish preacher James Stewart makes a powerful statement when he talks about the mystery of Jesus' personality as a startling coalescence of contrarieties. That word contrariety, I didn't, I didn't make that up. I didn't take that for myself. I got it from this quote here. A coalescence, a coming together of contrarieties. Again, things that are, um, seem contradictory, but they're not, but they balance each other out. They hold each other in balance, but in tension also. Listen to this. This is rich. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men. Yet he spoke on coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that children loved to play with him. And the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the uh, innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions. Yet for sheer stark realism, he has all our self-styled realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet he masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at last himself he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts that confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. In the contrarieties in Jesus, we see how he represents the answer for all the tensions that we feel in ourselves. It's an incredible thing. The glorious God coming down as a baby. And Jesus continued to model that with his life. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. He saved others. He saved everyone. But he didn't save himself. This is the coalescence, the coming together of contrariety that is Jesus. And we read in verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were, not born, who were born not of the blood or the will of flesh nor the will of man, but of God. The creator of the stars, born in the tiny, weak flesh, vulnerable flesh of a baby. God's entire rescue plan for humankind, there's no plan B, this is it. Sleeping in an animal trough. The creator and giver of life, dying, full of life. Jesus, full of life, dying so that those of us who are spiritually dead can live. This is the Jesus that we celebrate this Christmas. This is the Jesus who gives us life, the Jesus that we follow. He's worthy of our affection and our obedience, of our close relationship and our magnificent awe. He's our Savior and our Lord. Are you following Him? Have you submitted your life to Him? If not, would today be the day? If you are following Him, are you following Him closely? Are you close to Him, and yet are you in awe of Him? He gave His life for you. One of uh, my, Katie and I have several different uh, Christmas albums that we like to listen to this time of year. And uh, one of the... Uh, favorite lyrics on one of them is this. How many kings step down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? And how many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that is torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one did that for me. In all the loud noise of this Christmas season, would you quiet your heart and contemplate the quiet but heavy glory of our infant king. Let me pray for us. Father, what a marvelous, marvelous plan to rescue each of us and to rescue the people of this world. And it's, it makes sense, but it totally blows our minds at the same time. God, and it's so easy this time of year to speed past um, slowing down and just trying to think about and appreciate what you've done. We've heard the story so many times. I pray it wouldn't lose its meaning this Christmas. And you'd help us to set it into our hearts to, to stop and be quiet and contemplate and think and respond to the wonderful gospel message. Our Savior, an infant baby, coming down to rescue us. Would you help us, Lord? We love you. We praise you. We worship you. Would you fill our hearts with joy? Like was said earlier, Lord, as we come out of the world uh, to, to honor you um, and to experience a joy that, that is found nowhere else, I pray that we would truly live in that this year. And I pray that the things of the world that we're looking to, that those wouldn't satisfy and that would have the effect of turning our hearts towards you. Jesus, we worship you, we love you, and we thank you for coming for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.